So thank you, everyone. Well, good morning. My name is Alden. We are pre preaching out, uh, or I'm preaching. We're studying Matthew chapter 2. So if you haven't flipped there yet, if you would do that with me now, you'll be able to follow along with me as I go pretty much verse by verse. So we are continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew. And the main point of chapter two in the Gospel of Matthew is this. This is where we're going, this is where we're gonna be going for all of this sermon. God's plan cannot be thwarted. God's plan cannot be thwarted. So with that said, would you pray with me? And then we'll dive in to the text. Father, we just sang a worship song about how every part of us worships you, and, and Lord, I find myself so aware that that's not the case for me. I imagine that's true for a lot of us here, God. We don't worship you well enough, and yet you love us well enough, and so thank you, God, for, for loving us so well. Empower us to worship you well. Let this morning be a part of that. God, empower us to worship you well. God, I pray that we would behold you, that we would see you this morning in these words that you have spoken in Matthew chapter two. God, thank you for speaking to us today. And I, I wanna specifically ask, Lord, if there is anyone who needs to take a step of obedience today for you, that you would move in them to do so. Let us see you in this passage, Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen. So the first two verses read this of our text, and you're welcome to follow along with me here in verse one. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So this phrase, wise men, represents the word for magi, and that's, that's an appropriate translation, wise men, because they were typically wise. They were usually kingly advisors. But I'm, I'm gonna highlight that these are magi specifically because magi had a particular role that I think is important to the narrative as Matthew presents it here. So they were wise, they were educated kingly advisors. They were sometimes religious priests, although they were not Jewish. And they specialized in astronomy, interpreting dreams, and magic. And so it's important to notice that magi are not Jewish. J Jewish people would not have been associated in particular with magic. They're also from the east, right? So they're not from around here. They're not from Jerusalem, but they've come to Jerusalem. Now, the Jews in particular would not have appreciated the magi very much, just in general. First of all, they're Gentiles. A Gentile is just a, a term for a non-Jew. These people would be ceremonially unclean. There were a number of Jewish laws and customs that actually governed how to, or in particular, how to not interact with Gentiles. But also, they're priests from other religions, so they're pagan. They're also associated with magic. So, this is actually a pretty surprising situation with that context in mind, because these are people that Jews in particular in Jerusalem at that time would have scowled at. But it's these very people that are saying, hey Jews, where's your king at? We came to worship him, we saw his star, you know? 
They're like, no, I, I don't know. Yeah, who, who are you? You know, like, this would be really disorienting. What do you mean you saw his star? What do you mean you want to worship him? Y- y'all aren't Jewish. Honestly, you don't make very good Jews, even if you wanted to be, it, you know? So, I mean, this would be disorienting. Plus, we have some extra context here. In the days of Herod the king, it says in verse 1, Something to know about Herod was that he was very violent and oppressive toward all of his subjects in general, but especially to the Jews. A little bit of background about what a bad guy Herod was. He had many of his own family executed just because he had a hunch they were trying to overthrow him. In hindsight, he actually regretted killing one of his wives. Can you believe that? So, and that's he literally says, I regret doing that. I mean, gosh, not a cool guy, right? But about Jews in particular, this happened a few days before his death. Herod instituted, we we learned this from the Jewish historian Josephus, Herod instituted a command that all of the Jewish noble people should be executed as he is dying because he was concerned that the Jews that he was oppressing would not be grieved, but rather they'd be relieved by his death, and he didn't want them to feel relief. He wanted them to feel genuine grief, so he wanted to execute some Jews in order to make their grief genuine. Really, really terrible guy. But I share all that because it gives us some background to understand verse 3, which reads this, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. So Herod, he's a Roman authority. He's the earthly king over Jerusalem. He has the title king of the Jews right now. And he's desperate to maintain his rule as we've seen. He kills anybody even with a hunch of them trying to overthrow his rule. So he's troubled. And that makes sense. But it also reads that all Jerusalem was troubled with him. Now the reason that all Jerusalem was troubled is not explicit in our passage. But in light of the context about Herod, I think it makes sense that they would have been troubled by that. Because what does Herod do when his reign is threatened? He kills people. He kills people, which actually ends up happening at the very end of this chapter. Pretty consistent. So I think it's understandable that the Jews are troubled. But I want us to notice a difference between the Magi and the Jewish people, how they respond to Jesus' birth. When the Jewish people, these are God's chosen people, when they hear about the birth of the king of the Jews, their own king, they are troubled. All of them, our passage says. They're not happy about it. When the Magi hear about the king of the Jews, these are Gentile magicians. They're not only unclean, but they're sorcerers, right? When they hear about the king of the Jews being born, they leave home, they look for him to worship him. The Jewish people scowl at the Magi, but it is the Magi who worship the Jews' king. There's some irony there. There's also some foreshadowing here of how the Jewish people would respond to Jesus' entire ministry, which would climax in them actually, the Jews in Matthew 27, 24, 25, they personally take responsibility for killing Jesus. His blood be on our heads and on the heads of our children. That's how Jerusalem responds to Jesus at the end. This is how Jerusalem responds at the beginning. It's bookended at the beginning and end of Jesus' life. John 19, 21, 22 reads this. Pilate, who was the Roman authority responsible for crucifying Jesus, wrote as Jesus' inscription, the king of the Jews. This is a Roman Gentile confessing kingship for Jesus. Here's how the Jewish leaders respond. Do not write king of the Jews, Pilate. 
Rather, write that this man said, I'm king of the Jews. But Pilate responded, what I've written, I have written. In his own way, Pilate, this Roman Gentile, confessed that Jesus was the Jewish king, but the Jews themselves refused to give him that title. This is John 1, 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So, let's continue into verse 4. Assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, this is Herod, Herod inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So Herod wants to know, where's the Christ prophesied to be born? Now we'll find out in a few verses. His motive is that he wants to kill this king of the Jews. He wants to thwart God's plan. In the following verses throughout this chapter, we're going to see how that ends up working out for Herod. Not so well, if you want a sneak peek, but let's continue. Notice also, the Magi don't know where Jesus is supposed to be born, actually. They just see a star that somehow, and I don't know, we don't know, the text doesn't say, but somehow communicates to them that the king of the Jews has been born. And they reasonably assume, all right, well, we got to go to Jerusalem. That's where the Jewish people are at, so let's go find their king. But they're not actually correct about that. They show up in some ignorance. Oh, we're not quite in the right place. It's the Jewish chief priests and scribes who know the Old Testament answer of where their king is to be born. Matthew quotes it here. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So, this is nearly an exact quote of Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But I share that it's nearly an exact quote because there is a difference, and I'm putting this on our screens here. Micah 5, 2 in the Old Testament is on the left. Matthew's version that he's quoting is on the right. Look at the, I've highlighted the difference. You who are too little, that's the Old Testament reality. Bethlehem is too little at the time of that prophecy. But from you is going to come forth a ruler. But by Matthew's time, this passage is partially fulfilled because now when Matthew's quoting it, you are by no means least. Double negative, you are great among the rulers. So before in the Old Testament, you were little. But now in the New Testament, you're big. This is fulfilled because this is happening. Jesus has been born. So now Bethlehem is a big deal. Now, the second half of this, from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel, that's still future tense. That's not quite fulfilled yet because Jesus is a baby. He's not ruling yet in the way that this prophecy is prophesying he will. His rule is still yet future. But what's past tense is he has been born. And so now Bethlehem is a big deal. He will be the ruler of Israel, but he has been born in Bethlehem. That is what Matthew is saying by citing Micah 5.2 exactly this way. Let's continue. Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. So wise men, again, that represents the word magi. So he summoned the magi secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. So Herod got the location from the Jewish people. But now he's getting the timing from the Magi. He's putting together his different resources of when and where so that he can make a plan to kill Jesus. And he's doing it secretly, it says. He, he, he summoned them secretly. He doesn't want people knowing about his plans. Well, Herod, that's too bad. God knows about your plans. 
and we're going to see how that unfolds in just a moment. Verse 8, and he sent them to Bethlehem, that's the Magi, saying, go and search diligently for the child, you Magi, and when you have found him, bring me Herod word that I too may come and worship him. Yeah, right. Herod is lying here, right? And that's pretty obvious. Herod does not like it when anybody's about to overthrow his rule. This is no exception. Herod wants to kill the person who is called king of the Jews. He doesn't want to worship him. So he makes up this story to the Magi, and then uh, they give him the information he needs. He is anticipating that they're going to give him the information he needs. So verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. The first thing I want to say about this passage is that there have been a lot of attempts, believe it or not, to understand this star in terms of modern astrophysics, okay? So Christian astrophysicists who are genuine believers, and I'm not criticizing them a ton on this, uh, but they, they have studied when various astrophysical events have occurred and when they might line up with this description. And then they'll say, look, okay, therefore, we think we found the calendar date of Jesus' birth based on what astrophysics tells us. And look, that's fine. I, I love science. I actually got a master's in mechanical engineering from UMass. I love science. I love thinking about the intersection of faith and science. It's a passion of mine. But at the same time, as Christians... We shouldn't be afraid to make a claim about miracles. We worship a God who does scientifically unexplainable things. For example, raising dead Jesus from, raising to life Jesus who had been dead for three days decomposing. That's a miracle. That's not explained. That's not CPR. That's not what that, no, he was risen miraculously. So look, let me level with you. Maybe it was a comet or perhaps a planetary conjunction or a nova. Those are the leading theories of people who are convinced this way. But I just want to say, this seems miraculous to me. Verse 9, the star that they had seen from when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. They're like, oh, hey, that's our star. Oh, hey, it's moving. Let's follow it. Oh, hey, it's over the house that we need to go in. I mean, that doesn't sound natural. That seems supernatural. Plus, not to belabor the point, but plus, the Magi know how to get to Bethlehem without a star to help them out. It's a five-mile walk. That's less than a day's journey. They know which town to go to. They know the roads to get there. If it was a natural star, it would only at best get them the general direction. It wouldn't get them to the exact house. I bring all this up to say, God is supernaturally navigating the Magi here. He's also supernaturally revealing himself in dreams to all these people. God is setting this up deliberately. And the Magi know it. Read with me verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's quadruple joy. Did you see that? They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They're pumped. They're pumped. The star's over the house. Wow, here it is. Verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So they're overwhelmed with joy, with quadruple joy, right? They worship him, they bow down to him. They offer him these treasures, gold, frankincense and myrrh. Now, at that time in that culture, these particular gifts would have been luxury gifts fit for a king. They, so they honor him as a king. 
And they do that because that's what they know about him, right? The star, whatever, however it worked for them, revealed to them specifically that he would be king of the Jews. And so they worship him accordingly as a king. I want us to notice that the Magi worship Jesus exactly according to what they know about him. What do they know about him? They know he's a king. So how do they worship him? They worship him as a king. Now for us, 2,000 years later, Christians who read our Bibles, this is 2,000 years after the Magi, we know that Jesus is not just our king, he is also, although he is our king, he is also our God, our savior, our friend, in fact, our husband in a spiritual sense. Jesus is all these things and more to us. But the point I'm making here is that the, the Magi's knowledge of Jesus informed their worship of Jesus. Their knowledge of Jesus informed their worship of him. And so my question for us this morning is, is your knowledge of Jesus consistent with your worship of him? Or is there a deficiency? Is your knowledge of Jesus consistent with your worship of Jesus? Perhaps you're sitting here and you've been exploring the faith for a while. Maybe you've been getting to know Jesus and you have some knowledge at this point. You're getting to know what the faith is all about, who Jesus is, what he's all about. You just haven't taken the step to worship him that way yet. The Magi had consistent worship. I want to encourage you to go do likewise. Offer Jesus the worship that you know he deserves because you know he does deserve it. Let's give that to him. I want to invite you to do that this morning if you haven't done that before. Take a hold of Jesus. Trust him. Worship him. He deserves it. Maybe you're a committed Christian, but you recognize that your worship is not consistent with your knowledge of Jesus. Same thing for us too, right? Jesus deserves our full worship. Let's joyfully give that to him. He ought to have it. Let's continue into verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, that's another divine influence on the plan. Nobody can thwart God's plan, right? Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So the Magi were notorious for interpreting dreams. They were dream interpreters, and God communicates with them in a way that they understand. Again, God's plan cannot be thwarted. They don't return to Herod. Verse 13, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Verse 14, and he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. So now Herod is upset, or God is anticipating to Joseph that Herod will be upset. Herod is going to try to kill Jesus despite the Magi's aversion of him, and God's not going to let him. God warns Joseph, and Joseph obediently flees immediately. We'll see more about Joseph's faithful obedience later on in this chapter. But the point that I want us to notice here, God does not let Herod thwart his plan. Herod cannot get in God's way. Now, as Christians, I know that we know this. 
But I think it's helpful to just sit in it for a second here. Nobody and no thing can get in the way of God's plan, my friends. Isaiah 46.10 says this, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. There are a lot of reasons for us today to be afraid and anxious in this life. There's even disasters that are going on politically, militarily right now as we're hearing about. There are a lot of reasons to be anxious in this life. In the case of Joseph and Mary, their baby was being hunted by their government. In your case, it's whatever you're anxious and afraid about, you name it, right? But I want to share with you a, a, a passage that we often quote, Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And the way that that paragraph ends is this, because those he has called, he is guaranteed to be glorified. This is not some cheesy passage, I love God, God loves me, so my life is going to be grand on earth. That's not necessarily the case. Your life might be hard. You might have major distress. Mary and Joseph certainly did. Your kids might go off the rails. You yourself might even die. But if you do, and you're a Christian, you will be in the hands of the one who has orchestrated the end from the beginning and who orchestrates your life in such a way that you will be eternally glorified. That is the comfort we get from nobody being able to thwart God's plan. And that is good news. Let's continue. Verse 15 concludes this way. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. So Jesus is fleeing to Egypt, being brought to Egypt by his fleeing parents, and now Matthew identifies this as a fulfillment of prophecy. So this is a quote from Hosea. This is a book in the Old Testament, chapter 11, verse 1. The context of Hosea, now it's, it's always helpful when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament to see what was the context of the Old Testament so that we can best understand what was the intention here in the New Testament, right? So Hosea is referring to the exodus when Israel escaped from Egypt, when they were oppressed in Egypt, right? So this phrase, my son, is a reference to Israel as a whole in Hosea. It's not talking about an individual, it's talking about the nation, right? The people that were led out by Moses out of Egypt. Hosea 11.1 1 is referring to the finished historical event, the Exodus, where God brought his people out, out of oppression in Egypt. So how can that finished historical event be fulfilled? I think that's a fair question. Let's think about what happened after Moses led Israel out of Egypt. How did they do? H how did they fare? Not so well, right? I mean, it was pretty poor. They were faithless after they were uh, removed from Egypt, and what ended up happening is that they got oppressed by Assyria and Babylon afterward as a divine discipline for disobedience. So was Israel truly liberated by Moses in the Exodus? No, they weren't. They went to a different place where they were then oppressed again. It didn't work. In fact, in the book of Hosea, 
They're being oppressed by Assyria actively. And a major theme in Hosea is that Israel's condition in Egypt is being replicated in Assyria. So the point that Hosea is making is that the Exodus didn't really work in that sense. Israel is still oppressed at the time of Hosea, and Israel in Matthew chapter 2 is still oppressed now under Herod, under Roman rule. Now, that doesn't yet give a full answer of how the Exodus is fulfilled, but let's keep reading, and this will be our key. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, been tricked by the Magi, he became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. If he can't find Jesus specifically, well, then he's just going to kill all the babies in the area, all the male babies in the area. Herod learned where he'd be born from the Jews. He learned when he was born from the Magi. And now he uses that information to attempt to kill Jesus. And here, I think, is the key to understanding how the Exodus event is fulfilled in Jesus coming out of Egypt. Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is the better Moses. I'm going to compare them both. In Moses' life, Pharaoh issues a decree to kill all the Hebrew baby boys, and Moses escapes. In Jesus' life, Herod sends people to kill the Bethlehem baby boys, and Jesus escapes. Both of them escape the slaughter. Moses flees to Midian, which is outside of Pharaoh's jurisdiction. Jesus flees to Egypt, outside of Herod's jurisdiction. Pharaoh dies, ending Moses' personal hunt, and then Herod dies, that's going to happen in verse 19, ending Jesus' personal hunt. But then in both cases, another oppressive king takes over. No longer is this oppressive king specifically looking for the individuals, but the people of God still need deliverance. And we see in Matthew chapter 2, verse 22, that the new king under Herod is also oppressive. But under Moses, during the exodus from Egypt, the Passover is initiated, right? But in Jesus, the Passover is fully realized. He is the Passover lamb who himself dies to forgive their sin and save God's people from oppression in an ultimate sense. Under Moses, Israel is only temporarily free from only earthly oppression, only to be opposed, oppressed rather, again. But under Jesus, we are fully and finally free from our greatest oppressor, sin and death. Deliverance under Moses was ultimately not effective. Deliverance under Jesus is totally effective. So, we see how this parallel is designed to point us to our ultimate deliverer, Jesus. God already called Moses out of Egypt to deliver God's people, and it didn't really work. God is going to call Jesus out of Egypt to deliver God's people, and that deliverance will be full, and it will be final. By calling Jesus out of Egypt, God was preparing to fulfill what was only begun with Moses in Egypt. So, Herod killed the male babies in Bethlehem, and then Matthew tells us this, yet another Old Testament prophecy is fulfilled. Read with me in verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So as Matthew indicates, this is a quote from the Old Testament book, Jeremiah. 
Some background, quick background on Jeremiah, is that Jeremiah was active during a time when Israel was oppressed by multiple nations at once. In the north, Assyria had already exiled a number of Jews. That was what Hosea was speaking into that time period. But now in the southern regions of Israel, Babylon is oppressing them. So they're coming in on all fronts. I share the background just to say, when Jeremiah says this passage that Matthew now quotes, Israel is being oppressed and dispersed from every front, okay? Now, you may know Rachel, that's the woman who's weeping in our verse here, in our verse from Jeremiah, also in Matthew. Rachel is the wife of Jacob. Jacob is the patriarch of Israel, so kind of the, the source of the people of Israel, right? But in Jeremiah, Rachel is not literally weeping, for her descendants. Rachel is long gone. She's been dead for many generations now. So this is metaphorical. The message that Jeremiah is giving is the mother figure of Israel, right, saying, look what has become of this family. That's, that's what Jeremiah 31 is, is talking about in that passage. They have disobeyed God to such a degree that all this disaster has come upon them and they're dispersed. So, in the context of Jeremiah, Rachel's weeping is because her children are oppressed and exiled by foreign nations. They're not together anymore. They're either dispersed or they're dead. Jeremiah 31 continues, though. I'm just going to summarize it here. It's not going to be on your screens or anything. You don't have to turn there. God says, hey, Rachel, don't weep, though, because your children will come back. There is hope for your future, God says. They won't be in exile anymore. I have disciplined you, O Israel, but in the future I will restore you. I have punished you, but then in the future I will embrace you. In the future you will not be scattered. Instead, you will dwell together. And that is how Jeremiah's mention of the new covenant is ushered in. And this will be on your screen, starting in Jeremiah 31, verse 31. This is what God says right after that. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. The days are coming, Rachel, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's what Hosea is talking about a better covenant, right? My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Israel, you broke the first covenant that I made. That was under Moses. But you're not able to break this one the new covenant, the one under Jesus. This covenant is not like that older covenant. Moses' covenant after the Exodus did not work, but something better is here. It's Jesus. So in Jeremiah, Rachel is weeping metaphorically because her children are exiled and oppressed. But God says, don't weep because in the future, your children are gonna come back and I'll make a new covenant, a permanent covenant that they cannot break where this will not happen. And Matthew says that Rachel's weeping is now fulfilled. Why? Because God is ushering in the new covenant. Now it's happening. Now Jesus is coming. He is the institutor of the new covenant. Under this new covenant, Rachel's children will be gathered back together, and therefore there will be no more weeping. From Jeremiah 31 to Matthew 2, Rachel has been weeping, metaphorically, because her children have been oppressed. But in Matthew 2, God is saying, now that weeping is fulfilled because the new covenant has arrived and when it arrives, it will wipe away all of her tears. 
To be clear, the Christian message does not guarantee oppression, as many of us know. Oppression is not going to be fully eradicated on this side of eternity. Now, don't get me wrong. In heaven, there will be zero oppression. God will fully and finally eradicate it. There's an already and not yet to this new covenant, right? We have some of it. We don't have all of it yet. And we need 1431. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. So we all need to be involved in anti-oppression movements, right? We all need to do that. But to be, I just want to clarify what Jesus has precisely accomplished now. What Jesus has accomplished for us here in the here and now is delivering us from the oppression of sin and death, our ultimate oppressor, our spiritual oppressor. Now, I think we're used to hearing this, honestly. As Christians, I think we're used to hearing this. But I want to really invite you, if you feel stuck somewhere, if you don't feel free spiritually, if you're, maybe you're stuck in depression or fear, anxiety, maybe peer pressure, or you're just somewhere that you know Jesus doesn't want you to be stuck in, I want to encourage you with Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free spiritually. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So don't get me wrong. There, there are times where we're stuck because we just need other people's help. We're not able to get us, ourselves out ourselves. And I, wanna, I don't want to say like, pull yourself up from your bootstraps, go be free. And no, sometimes we just, we need help from others. But there are other times where we ourselves are just letting ourselves get stuck in this yoke of slavery that we're putting on ourselves. And if that's you, I want to encourage you. Come live in this freedom that Christ has died to set you free into. Come live in this. Come live in the reality that Rachel isn't weeping anymore. It's a spiritual reality. Be free in this new covenant. Let's continue into verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Something to notice, and we've seen this already. Joseph obeys immediately. In fact, earlier in verse 14, when he gets a dream in the middle of the night, God tells him, rise, like get out of bed, and flee. And that night they leave. They're out of there. He rose and took the child's mother by night and departed to Egypt. That's verse 14. Joseph exercises immediate obedience. And it's hard, immediate obedience. From Bethlehem to Egypt would have been a 150-mile trip. And then Joseph's obedience is consistent here as he packs his bags to head back to the land of Israel. But this is relevant to us. So I want to ask us, do we obey God the way that Joseph exhibits here? I know that I don't. And I hate that. Obedience is hard, honestly. It's hard for me. I'm sure it's hard for you too. How often do we know God is pushing us to do something and we just, we drag our feet to do it? I'm not saying that all of us need to get up and move 150 miles away in a moment's notice in the middle of the night. We're not all called to do that. But is there anything, to apply this to ourselves, is there anything in particular that you know you need to obey God about, but you haven't fully really given that up to him? 
Are you reluctant to obey him in a particular way? Is there something that you know you ought to do, but you've neglected to do it? James 4.17 says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. As we've already said, Jesus deserves our worship. He deserves our wholehearted worship. Let's give that to him. Let's obey him because we love him, because he deserves it. Amen? Even though the authorities are no longer specifically looking for Jesus, Herod's son, Archelaus, is not much better than Herod was. So Joseph has pause about it, and God affirms him in that pause. He warns him in a dream. But let's notice that God's command was general. In verse 20, it says, God says, go to the land of Israel, to the land of Israel. Now, Joseph assumed that that meant Bethlehem in the land of Judea, where he had previously come from. But as it turns out, God had something different in mind for Joseph. Not only does God have a plan for where Jesus would be born, that's Bethlehem, but he also has a plan for where he would grow up, and that's in Galilee, specifically in Nazareth, and we'll see more about that in our last verse. But for now, I want us to soak this in. God told Joseph, go to the land of Egypt. Joseph assumed that he knew exactly what that meant, but then as he was walking, God showed him otherwise and diverted his path. This is relevant to us because when God calls us to do things, sometimes we have in our mind a a really specific idea of what that's going to look like. But it doesn't always work out that way, does it? How often do our plans go according to the way that we expected, even when we pray about how to do them? Not that often. I want to share another verse in James, James 4, 13, 15. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So, Mercy House, my friends, let's, let's obey God, yes, but let's do so, and, and let's consider what he calls us to do, and do so with determination, right? But let's do so with a posture of openness to whatever God wants with us. Whether it was our impression, specifically, or not, whether it was our plan, even our preference, or even our desire, let's give to him what he calls us to do. As we've seen, God's plan cannot be thwarted. Let's ourselves not get in his way, too. Last verse, verse 23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, with this verse, there is a a general takeaway that's very clear, but then there's a detail that's not so clear, and I'm going to address both of those in turn. The clear general takeaway of the passage is this. Jesus' upbringing is a fulfillment of God's plan. Jesus' upbringing is a fulfillment of God's plan. The the, the details, excuse me, the details of Jesus' earthly life are occurring exactly as God had predicted they would in the Old Testament. We've seen three fulfilled prophecies already. Frankly, that's the main point of the whole chapter. Jesus' upbringing fulfills four different Old Testament prophecies, including this one. Jesus' life is going exactly according to God's plan. That's the clearest and the most important takeaway. So with that said, the detail that at least is not explicit in our passage is how exactly Jesus being a Nazarene is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. 
This is a bit of a head scratcher because the word Nazareth or Nazarene actually never occurs in the entire Old Testament. Neither Nazareth nor Nazarene in the whole Old Testament. So what does this mean? Now, before we panic, did Matthew get it wrong? Let, let's recognize something about the way that Matthew quotes the Old Testament, both here and throughout his entire gospel. It is abundantly clear that Matthew is very precise in how he quotes the Old Testament. We've seen him quote Micah 5.2 with such precision that he's precisely explaining how the prophecy about Bethlehem was fulfilled. Now they're great, but the ruler still is a future ruler, right? So he is so precisely quoting that in context with significance, right, to make his point. And then later, he quoted Hosea 11.1, 1, Jeremiah 31.5, in exactly their appropriate contexts to illustrate his exact point about Jesus being the new and better Moses and the new covenant being ushered in. Not only that, not only does he quote exactly in context, but even he's looking at the original Hebrew translations. The modern Bible of Matthew's day was the Greek translation of the Old Testament because they spoke Greek. The New Testament was written in Greek, but the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and so to make the Bible accessible to people, they translated it into Greek. But there are times when Matthew actually corrects the modern Bible of his day, and he cites the Old Testament passage according to the original Hebrew, not according to the Bible of his day. Because, why is he doing that? Because he cares to be so precise about how he quotes his Bible. So, we can rest assured he's not making something up here. He's been super meticulous so far. Plus, let's notice Matthew is not claiming to be quoting a particular passage. He, it simply says, so that what was spoken, quote, by the prophets might be fulfilled. This is a summary of Old Testament truth, not a direct quotation. It's similar to what Jesus does at the end of Matthew's gospel in chapter 26, 56. This has taken place, Jesus says, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. It's the general thrust of the Old Testament scriptures. This is the truth that they're getting at, right? So that begs the question for us, what general truth from the Old Testament is being fulfilled in Jesus being, quote, called a Nazarene? There are, a no now it's not explicit, so I want to say there are a number of reasonable ideas that Christians have considered. The view that I think makes the most sense is this. To be called a Nazarene seems to have meant to Matthew's audience to be equivalent to being called an outcast or to be rejected. Why do I say that? Look with me, it'll be on your screens in John chapter 1, verse 45. Philip is telling Nathanael, hey, hey, I met Jesus. Let's look at his initial reaction. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. What stands out to Nathanael most in that statement? Not, oh, so cool, we figured out who the Messiah is, although that would be really big news, right? Nathanael said to him, wait, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's his first impression. Also, in John 7, when the Jews learned that Jesus is from the region of Galilee, more specifically in the city of Nazareth, which the region of Galilee contained, this is how they respond. No way, you're the Messiah. You're from Galilee. They scorn him for where he lived. Also notice, Matthew does not say, he lived in Nazareth so that he would be from Nazareth or raised in Nazareth. No, rather, he says he would be called a Nazarene. This is about name calling. This is about rejection. Not you. We're calling you a Nazarene. We're calling you rejected. 
This understanding of being called a Nazarene sure lines up with the Jewish response earlier in chapter 2 to his arrival. The Jews were troubled by his arrival. They rejected him. They scorned him, which, by the way, is exactly what, quote, the prophets, the general thrust of the Old Testament prophets was. They all talked about how Jesus would be rejected by his people. One of the many passages we could look at, Isaiah 53.3, he, that is the Messiah in the Old Testament, who is Jesus now revealed in the New Testament, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. From the moment of Jesus' birth, he was rejected by his people. That's verse 3. Even though he was the, verse 6, the promised ruler from Bethlehem who would shepherd God's people. Even though, as Hosea talks about, even though he's the better Moses, as Matthew says, who will fully and finally deliver God's people from oppression, not just physically, but also spiritually, even though he ushers in the new covenant when God's people will one day all be gathered together, flourishing, not scattered, not weeping. No, he was rejected despite all of that. And the climax of that rejection was at the cross. When the Jews, whom Jesus came to save... When the Jews crucified him, here's what Jesus says, hanging on the cross, Luke 23, 43, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know what we learn from the cross in this passage in Matthew 2? Not only no one can thwart God's plan, yes, no one can thwart God's plan, that includes us. We cannot thwart God's plan. The Jews are the ones who crucified him, and Jesus hanging there says, Father, forgive them. No matter how much we mess up, even if we crucify Jesus, no matter how much we reject Jesus, which on some level we all do in our daily lives, we're not always loving Jesus perfectly, we cannot break this new covenant. We can't do it. It's impossible. Even though we continually reject Jesus all the time. When Israel rejected God, the repercussions were exile and oppression to teach them a lesson in that time. But now Rachel's weeping is fulfilled. In the new Jerusalem, which is all of our future destinations as believers, we won't be dispersed. We won't be exiled. We will be together. We will be flourishing. We will not be weeping anymore. Revelation 21, 4. And that's because Jesus died to give it to us. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out in my blood. As often as you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. When we take communion, we remember that Jesus died. We deserved punishment for rejecting Jesus. But Jesus took that punishment for us on the cross instead so that we wouldn't experience that. So that instead we could worship him together forever without weeping. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for dying for us. Thank you for being the shepherd that will rule your people. Thank you for being the better Moses who permanently removes us from oppression on that great day when you come back. Thank you for ushering in this new covenant, which we cannot break, God. 
Thank you that we look forward to an eternity without weeping because of that. And thank you, Jesus, finally, the last fulfillment in this chapter, that you were rejected. Thank you for being rejected for us. We are sorry that we reject you all the time. But how ironic that the fact that we reject you, you used those means to save us, God. Thank you, Jesus, for dying to forgive us. Thank you for delivering us from the oppression of sin and death. And thank you that on that last day, we will be even delivered from physical oppression as well, Lord. Let us remember now how you died to give us this eternal life, this eternal joy with you. Joy that the Magi's had at least a taste of. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, God. Give us, give us quadruple joy, Lord, like the Magi had. Thank you, Lord. It's in your name we pray, amen.